Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here in London with my friend Carrie, who's down the line from Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say it any other way now. I realized I'm like, I was trying and it's done. So that's how it goes. How are you doing, Carrie, down the line from Oxford Plit? Well, I'm here down the line, Octavia, in Oxford. (laughs) I'm good. Spring is springing. I think I said that last time, but now it's really springing. And we've had some nice bouts of weather. Just love, I love spring in the UK. I have to say, I think it's the best time of year here. So I'm, I'm a happy bunny. How about you? Similarly, although I am already anxious now about the passing of spring. <laughs> oh no, okay, yeah. I had this moment of Live walking. in the moment. I do, but then it's the magnolias that get me because mm. they are so exquisite and they, they are so rarely there, you know? And I was walking past one that's near my house the other day and all of the petals have started to fall. I'm sure there's like a German word for it, you know, that like end of spring anxiety that comes when you see all of this wild beauty and it, then it starts to recede. And I felt this kind of very profound melancholy that I associate with spring. Like I find it quite a high and low, high and low period of the of the year. I mean, all periods of the year are like that for me, but I think spring quite <laughs> acutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very dramatic. It's yeah. very dramatic. And yeah, the magnolias, I, I get a lot of magnolia anxiety as well because I'm so excited for them to come out, but you don't really know when it's going to happen. And then right. I, was, I was away in Paris and, uh, you know, when they were all blooming and I was really stressed out oh. that I was going to come back and they're all going to be like past their prime. I do. I do really get it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Great. Well, before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 27 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes. And actually our Patreon this month, which will be out next week, is a little bit of an extension of this mini-sode, we're going to be talking specifically about Paris, which is a city that is important to both of us and one of our patrons asked us to discuss. And there's another exciting business announcement. As you probably know, Octavia's book is coming out this June and bookshop.org wanted to offer our listeners a special deal. So Octavia, can you tell us more about it? I sure can. It's a really amazing thing. I'm incredibly happy to announce that This Ragged Grace has been selected as the bookshop.org book of the month for June, which is just incredible. And it also means that you, our wonderful listeners, can currently get free shipping and 10% off with the code RAGGED10. That's capital R-A-G-G-E-D and then the number 10. And any sales made through bookshop.org help support independent bookshops. There is a link to pre-order and more details in the show notes. I'm also going to be doing a little tour in June up and down England and also to Scotland. So if you'd like to come to any events, please come to some events. I'll be posting about them on my Twitter and Instagram feed. So keep your eyes on those. Get on board the Octavia Bright tour bus. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm so excited. And I'm also like very nervous. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be great. But now back to Minisode 39. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. 
you can count on it. And today, our theme was suggested by our patron, Alicia, who asked us to talk about cities in literature, which is, I think, a really great theme, also a massive theme. So the usual proviso that we're just going to scratch the surface just barely today definitely applies. But let's get in there with a really straightforward question. How do you, Carrie Blitt, feel about cities? And I guess a, a supplementary question, if you're going on holiday, do you want to go to a city or are you more interested in escaping city life? Mm, good question, Octavia. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I feel mixed about cities is the truth. I grew up in the suburbs, but within the suburbs, down a long dirt road in the middle of a literal swamp, you know, surrounded by woods. So I think I've always just felt more at home in the countryside than in the city. And I lived in London for a long time. I love the buzz, love the mix of people, love the feeling that I was in the center of things. But I always felt that I needed an escape from London, that I needed to go outside of it to to be restored. And I find, I mean, now that I'm living in Oxford, I feel like I need to go back into London to, to get my fix. So I feel like I love cities, but there's always a part of me that's yearning to be in the countryside. And there's a part of me that really wishes that wasn't true because cities are just so much cooler and <laughs> more environmentally friendly. And I think city people are just generally cooler people. But the truth is that I'm a country mouse at, at my core. And I love living overlooking a meadow in Oxford near the river. So yeah, which I also I should say Oxford is a city and, and it feels like a nice compromise. I like being in a small city where I'm surrounded by nature. And as for your supplementary question, I do love exploring cities and sometimes I think visiting them is more fun than living in them because you get to just experience it for a little while and like mm. be in a different world and cities offer so much in terms of landscape and architecture and art and culture and food and they're easier to get to. They're easier to get around in. So I'm a big fan of of the city break. How about you? How do you feel about cities? Well, I'm a bona fide city kid and they are really where I feel the most comfortable by a really, really long way. But before I launch into why, cool. I just... Cool. Well, no, I want to counter that by saying like probably the coolest person I've ever met is my friend Sophie's cousin, who is a dog sledder out in like the most remote part of Norway. And she is a complete badass and she kind of hates cities because she kind of hates people. <laughs> but she's definitely one of the coolest people I've ever met. So I counter that. I think it's just what's different from you can appeal as cool, right? Like I find people who can survive in the wilderness, like magnetic and compelling because I, a city kid, <laughs> would die very rapidly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was born in, I was born in Bayswater, which is a very, not very cool, but very central part of London. I grew up right in the middle of the city. So, you know, there was like outside of my parents' house is a railway and a flyover, <laughs> like the, the center, the West End, you could walk across the park to get there. So it was a very, very urban, a very particular kind of urban experience, I should say. And then, you know, when I was nine or 10, we lived in Hong Kong for a bit. And then as a student, I lived in Madrid and I later got a job working in Paris. So I really found myself drawn from capital city to capital city, basically. And I think the only other place I've been where I felt it was 
big enough and broad enough and rowdy enough to kind of work for me was New York, actually. Like, I love Paris and I love Madrid, but they both felt a little bit small. Oh my God. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. But it's, I think it's just the energy of this place of London is, is so foundational to, to me. And the, you know, listening to you describing your relationship to needing to be around the countryside and everything, like it just left me thinking we're so shaped by our experiences of where we were born and where we were raised. And and that is true for lots of people, but it's certainly not true for everyone. And I think it's interesting that you and I have clearly been very imprinted by that. I've tried living in smaller cities and I've tried living in towns and it, it didn't work for me <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> I mean, we met in in Cambridge, which is like it is a city as well, but it's a very small city as far as I'm concerned in in England. But I also spent six months living in Margate, which when I moved there, I thought maybe I'd stay for a long time. And after six months, I had to come back to London. I just it had so much that I loved. It had the sea and and these incredible vistas and a really vibrant kind of artistic community that I I had one kind of foot in, but I just couldn't cope with the smallness of either of those places. I missed the variety. And I found the predictability of them really suffocating after a while. And the fact that in those smaller communities, you just see the same people all the time and you can't slip into anonymity really ever. And I've I've come to rely on being able to do that because of the big city experience, you know? Whereas I love bumping into people. I think it's so wonderful. I love the feel of community in Oxford that I'm like, I'm constantly seeing people that I know. Yeah. So I enjoy that, but I enjoy also being able to avoid it. And I love visiting other cities too. Like you, I loved what you said about, you know, you get to drop in and, and experience it as a visitor and then go again. And you, you know, it's because cities have this, all cities have a really dark underbelly. All cities are like hotbeds of inequality and certain kinds of violence and really complicated, complex systems rubbing up against one another. And when you're from a city, you have a really deep understanding of that. But when you're visiting, you can pretend it's not happening, which is, you know, not ethically unquestionable, (laughs) but it is what we do when we're tourists, isn't it? We visit, we, we reap the best of something and we try not to look at the darker parts if we're there on holiday and just wanting to relax. But yeah, I love escaping the city as well. And I think like, I think cities demand that you escape them sometimes because they are relentless, right? But for me, the escape, I mean, it won't surprise you that it's all about extremes and basically like I I love like big thriving cities and I love really remote countryside. And I want to swing from one to the other. I find sort of suburban life and village life very, very claustrophobic. And I don't say that meaning to sound judgmental at all. It's very personal. And I can see that it's totally rooted in my urban experience, you know? Yeah. I also don't think there are that many people who like go on vacation to the suburbs. Well, no, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I wasn't thinking that in the context of vacation so much. But yeah, like, uh, yeah. And also the concept of the suburb is shifting and changing because the city is growing and growing. And like there are some sort of cities in, in the context of which the suburb is a representative of wealth and in other cities it's a representative of lack of wealth and like what these things mean and what they actually are like to experience. We use the same word, but actually like the suburbs of New Jersey are very different to the suburbs of Madrid, are very mm. different to the suburbs of Mumbai, right? Like we shouldn't really use the same word to apply to all of these things because they don't mean the same thing every single time. So true. Contain multitudes. 
yeah, there you go, baby. That's it. That's the that's the bridge. That's it. <laughs> Do you like to read about multitudes, i.e., cities? <laughs> and like, are you are you drawn to stories that are set in cities? And I guess that can apply to fiction or also nonfiction. Yeah, it, it definitely can, and I love to read about cities. I think that cities offer such an exciting canvas for fiction because they're always changing, as you say. There's always something new, and there are just so many people and different kinds of people within them and within a relatively small area. So you have this like bounded space, which, as we've discussed a lot on the show, is a really ripe territory for fiction when you have kind of boundaries around the place that you're discussing, but also all kinds of different people and interactions and things that can happen within that space. So so yeah, I love it. I, and I love reading novels about real cities, partially because it gives me an insight into their particular cultures and their particular subcultures. You know, I, I was thinking about The Flamethrowers by oh, Rachel Kushner yeah. and, and New York city art worlds and how thrilling it is to sort of peel back the curtain and see what that was like in history and get a sense of their spatial geography. But I also love reading about imagined cities. And I think that that that's a really fertile space for authors and and being in some inside somebody's fully constructed imaginary city. There's there's kind of nothing like it. So I was thinking the kind of er example of this is Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which yeah. um you know, of course, is descriptions of all of these cities that don't exist. But, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera is kind of in a in a, a fake imagined city somewhere in Colombia. And then in terms of nonfiction, yeah, I think I also love nonfiction about cities. And particularly, I think the history of cities, because one thing that books are so good at is holding just a very dense amount of information and knowledge. And cities themselves are such dense places. You know, they're palimpsests. There's so much overlapping. There's so much going on both in the present and in the past. And so I think there there's some really great biographies of cities. Peter Ackroyd's London, which somebody gave me when I first moved to London and I really loved reading, or Bettany Hughes' Istanbul. And there, there are so many other books along those lines. And, you know, the one book that feels like my like city nonfiction mountain to climb is... Um, the Power Broker by Robert Caro, which is a very, very long nonfiction masterpiece about Robert Moses, who was a civil servant who completely reshaped the infrastructure and the fortunes of, of New York City and, and its people. And I got 100 pages in. It was amazing, but I had barely made a dent. And I put it down. I just haven't picked it back up again, but I would really like to finish that. <laughs> I'm laughing because Kate was reading that a few years ago when we were on holiday together. And it was this like extreme doorstop. <laughs> yeah, it's giant. It's so intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she said it was totally fascinating and and completely worth it. And I think it's a really great example of, I mean, I've not read it, but actually how cities are these entities that are kind of shaped by policy and shaped by civil servants and architects and people who are imbued with all kinds of power. But then they're also the sites of incredible dissent and revolutionary counterculture, right? Like yeah. they they have to contain both of these things. They tend to contain like the seats of power, whether that's the palace, if there's a monarchy or the houses of parliament, the seat of government. And then they also contain all of the rogue kind of entities that can 
can really grow within the city's limits and people hustling and getting by on a black market rather than participating in the national economy and all of that, right? There's just so much happening. <laughs> oh yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, that's why they offer so much to authors, as you say, like the fact that you can plausibly bring together people from totally different milieu in, a, in an instant is the is like the big gift to literature of the city, right? But there's also something kind of like madly timeless about about the experience of being in a city. Like I was thinking actually about Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And I'm going to refrain from making my customary dad joke here, but it's costing me. So what is your dad joke? It's the one about, you know, you might have heard of him. It's really oh. cringe. Oh, yes. <laughs> I can't believe you made me do it. <laughs> what a dick, Carrie. Seriously. Anyway, I really think that that novel, which you may or may not have heard of, gets at the sense of like hope and loss and and really alienation, right? That feels so quintessential to the urban experience now as much as it did then. And it, it also gets at the tension between kind of class and wealth and status, right? Like it's all there. And I think you you can't avoid that in the city. I was thinking about other books that I've kind of really brought cities to life for me. There's a novel, a very sort of did incredibly well, Australian novel called The Slap by Christos Siolkas, which is set in Melbourne. And um, it's so specific to Melbourne, this book, right? Like Melbourne's a city, like a lot of Australian cities, that's very suburban. It has big sprawling suburbs that are actually very much part of the city. And it's also a city of immigrants and there's a strong Greek Australian community there. And in this novel, people of completely different persuasions, like different social classes, different kinds of wealth, different generations, different politics, are forced together by an inciting incident, which happens at a barbecue, which is also a very classic sort of Melbourne and I mean, Australian in general thing. But this one man slaps somebody else's child and the child's being a bit of a twat, but the guy slaps the kid and everything ripples out from there. And it really takes in so much to do with kind of aspiration and national identity and all of these things that are, are kind of really focused by the experience of living in, a, in an urban environment. And then another writer who's just generally I think of as a very much a writer who's associated with cities, both imagined and real actually, is, is Borges, the Argentine writer, who's just everything he writes is so shaped by Buenos Aires, the city where he's from, which is itself like one of the kind of OG melting pots, right? Like it's a city of so many different languages and identities because it's a city built of immigrant communities again that brush up against its indigenous population. Okay, here's another one. When I go to a new city, I love to read books about the city, but not travel books, you know? Like I I will often try and find a fiction or poetry or something, or even nonfiction that's about the city that kind of gets like to get me in the mood almost. I, I guess it's a bit like visiting it before I actually visit it, if you know what I mean. Mm. And do you, like, do you do that? Is that something you're interested in? No, I do not do that. I don't often tailor my reading choices either before or when I go somewhere to the place I'm going. And I just, I just pick up books that I want to read at the moment. But then I always, I have to say, really regret it because as soon as I get there, I get absolutely obsessed with learning the history of the city. And then, you know, of course, don't haven't, haven't read any books on it, don't have any books on it. So I like intently read Wikipedia and then also <laughs> read, you know, in guidebooks when they always have like a little history and culture 
section about the place you are. I always read that like numerous times. But I always am like, who is writing these things? I think a lot of it is just not true or or very dubiously sourced. Like I was recently in Naples and the guidebook claimed that the expression see Naples and die was actually about how many sex workers there were and who had syphilis. And then people at the end of the grand tour would like go to Naples and then get syphilis. And I told this to everyone. And then I fact-checked it and I could not find it anywhere on the internet. (laughs) true. (laughs) So I really actually wish I did what you did and had the foresight to at least bring something along that would, that would help me learn about the history of the city once I was there. I don't know. How about you? Well, honestly, I don't know if it's often about the history to be fair. It's because I always want to read those things, those bits, but I get bored by them, which is terrible because they're full of fascinating or false information. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was a habit that was really shaped by my mum who loved reading, loves reading and and like and loves traveling. Anyway, we, we used to go to this bookshop in London called Daunts in in Marylebone, mm. which has this fantastic emphasis on travel books. We used to go a lot when I was a kid before we went anywhere. And there's a massive, incredible room at the back that's all oak panels and it's got a gallery and everything. And it's divided up by country, but they don't just sell travel books. So in each of the divisions, they have novels or nonfiction books that aren't necessarily history or, you know, cultural books and poetry and things like that about each country or or even some of the cities. And I think it really shaped my sense of like, when I go somewhere new, I'm also going to its literature. I'm also going to its art in general, right? And that tends to be my way in rather than the history. And I think that's, you know, we've talked a lot on the show before, regular listeners will know, like, I've had a tendency to want to be ahistorical, which is really problematic. And, you know, I'm coming through that as I mature. But like, I'm much more hooked by by fiction about a place that, right. it, that teaches me something about the place, but it's not as direct as, as history and, and facts, if you know what I mean. I do. And, you know, sometimes I learn more from a novel about the history of something than than a history book because the narrative helps me just engage with it in a totally different way. It yeah. It's in my mind differently. But what, yeah, like we're talking about writing that that really tries to capture the experience of a city. Does that appeal to you? Like, do you want to be immersed in the feeling of a place or would you rather have more of that kind of historical detail? It's a good question. And for me, I think it completely depends upon the book. So I love novels that just that do just give me a feel for how a city is or what its people do, how they talk. And I think Zadie Smith is a great example of an author who yeah. does that so well. I'm thinking particularly of NW that's set in Northwest London. And she just, she is such a brilliant observer. And I think she just really gets how people in London talk and interact with each other and live. I think the same is true actually of Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Avaristo, also in London, just a novel about people and how they they interact with the city, how they move around its space, how they experience its its culture and its life. But then other books, you know, kind of as I was saying, I I love learning history through novels. And, you know, I, I was thinking about Hilary Mantel's writing and Wolf Hall, made me so alive to the history of London. You know, it, it made me see the streets I was walking down every day in a completely different way. So I, I think I like a bit of both. How about you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I really, I love writing that really puts me in the 
in the sensory experience of the city, right? Like sounds, sensations, tastes. I, I, I want all of that because I think moving through a city is such a sensory overload a lot of the time. And when you live in a city all the time, you tune so much of it out in order to just be able to get through your day. But when you really engage with what's happening around you, if you take a moment to become fully present, it is insane. Like I was in Oxford Circus <laughs> earlier today on my way back from a, a work thing. And, and, and I did find myself just stopping for a minute being like, there's so much happening right now around me. And I think there are certain there are certain forms of writing that really get at that. I mean, also poetry is an incredible way to experience a city in the way mm. I'm sort of describing. Like I'm thinking of the New York and E.E. E. Cummings's work or a lot of the or beat Frank poets as well. Frank O'Hara, exactly. Lawrence Felinghetti, who was a beat poet who writes so brilliantly about that kind of frenzy. And then, and then also one of my favorite books of poetry about New York is actually by Lorca, the Spanish poet called Poeta en Nueva York, Poet in New York, where it really shows the power of the outsider's perspective on a place, right? And he had a really complicated time in New York. He felt really alienated by it. It was an assault on his senses coming from Spain, coming also from a slightly more kind of, I guess, refined experience. Like I remember there's a couple of poems where he's horrified. He goes to Staten Island and he goes to Coney Islands, I think, and he's horrified by people vomiting and he's horrified by the lack of respect they seem to have for their uh, statues and things like that. And he describes this city as a kind of monster trying to swallow him whole. And I think that that is very true to the experience for a lot of people, right? Especially of New York, which is one of the most overwhelming cities I've ever been to. So overwhelming. I mean, I wonder, like, are there any cities that you have, I guess, like a, a, a particularly strong or sensory relationship with, but only via literature. So like places that you haven't been, or maybe you did go, but do you know what I mean? That you met first in, in books. Yeah. Well, New York City is a city I know relatively well. And I grew up going to it because I had lots of relatives there. But I, I really think it's a city that has been so shaped for me by the books that I've read about it. And I think exists in my mind as a kind of mythical place, even though I know it pretty well because I've read so many books about it. You know, as you say, it kind of is the epitome of like a big city. It's so expansive. It's so loud. It's so vibrant. It has such extremes of wealth and poverty. It has so much art. It has so much architecture. And I think that I fell in love with it through words, really. I fell in love with it through stories. So I, I'm thinking about books like Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow, which is this historical novel about New York at the turn of the century, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is about how 1930s New York gave birth to comics. Or actually, I just read an audiobook of a contemporary book called Olga Dies Dreaming by Zochiel Gonzalez about a brother and a sister from the Puerto Rican community in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's a, it does contain multitudes. You know, there's, there are endless stories that you can tell about New York. And I love that about it. And I love reading about it. I'll never get tired of reading about it. But in terms of cities I've never been to, one of the cities that came to mind was Dublin, which has been so shaped from literature for me and so, by so many different writers and genres. So like Ulysses by James Joyce and Tana French. Amazing. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, I have such a weird version of it in my head. And I think I, I wonder if I'll like explode if I go there and it's just a real, you know, sort of normal city. Um, so I'm sort of scared to go to Dublin. Um, how about you? Yeah. I mean, 
New York definitely was a city I met first in literature, also in movies, which is, you know, a whole other conversation. But most recently, I think Naples is the one that comes to mind. I visited it as a kid and kind of became obsessed with it. Like there was this big dramatic story where my mom and I went down a side street we shouldn't have gone down and we got yanked into a like hot kitchen by a chef who was yelling at us in Italian to be like, you stupid tourists, what are you doing here? It's really dangerous in this neighborhood, but we didn't get it. It was very dramatic, basically. I had this kind of quite intense experience and it really imprinted on me. Then late, much later, as in just in the last few years, forged a really strong adult relationship with the place through listening to the audiobooks of most of Elena Ferrante's novels in also an incredibly short space of time when I was looking after my mom after she had this big heart operation. So I feel like in my mind, Naples is associated with danger in the past and also in the present, but in quite a kind of weirdly electric way. Yeah. But then the other city that is really purely just in literature for me, because I've never been, is Moscow. And I first encountered Moscow in Mikhail Bulgakov's novel, The Master of Margarita, which you may have heard me talk about on the show before. But, you know, the whole premise of that novel, if you haven't read it and you haven't listened to me bang on about it before, is that the devil comes to Moscow and the city itself becomes this kind of distorted place. But what that book does so brilliantly and what the city allows it to do so brilliantly is it's partly written in realist writing and it's partly written in totally surreal, fantastical kind of writing. And and a city is is a setting that can encompass both of those modes, right? Like there is something surreal and fantastical about city life. There is also something extremely gritty and realist about city life. And in this particular book, Bulgakov, you know, he's making a, it's a satire and there's a lot of political commentary in the book, as well as the sort of fantastical storylines and the historical storylines. But he wrote it, he was Ukrainian. He wrote it during an extremely dark period in Stalinist Russia, and it actually wasn't published until over 20 years later. So it is also this document of a particular moment in time and how he felt and the the kind of energy of the city at that time. And the city itself becomes part of this larger allegory for human nature and love and creativity and art and also politics and the dirty, grubby nature of exclusion and status and hierarchy. And seeing as I've never been there in real life, my mental version of Moscow is basically Bulgakov's. It's like, it's a Moscow where the devil is around and the devil is everywhere and you can feel him and see him. And also political corruption is everywhere and social hierarchy. And the only other encounter I've had with Moscow is through the work of, of a Russian writer, you know, Leo Tolstoy's novels, Anna Karenina and War and Peace, which is a very different version of Moscow, but <laughs> it's still this kind of like wild historical place that doesn't, I kind of don't have any concept of what contemporary Moscow is like, is basically what I'm trying to say. Like, I feel like I know the city fairly well. And of course I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I've read about it in these in these old novels. So yeah, I, I, I think I would have probably a similar experience to you in Dublin if I went to Moscow, where I'd just be like, wait, what is this place? <laughs> <laughs> but there's another book, actually. We interviewed a writer really a long time ago, very early on in, in our literary friction life. You remember Ramita Navai, who wrote a book called City of Lies about Tehran. And I I think about that book still. I think about her vision of Tehran still. That was nonfiction. So that's another city I'd like to visit that I've only met in literature. Same. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. That city's done and dusted, baby. <laughs> that's the other dad joke you make every show. I know. I just can't help it. I'm stuck in a rut. I need some help. 
Uh, we'll be back in a minute with our cultural recommendations. We are back to tell you about some of the stuff we've done lately that is not reading and that we would like to tell you about. So Carrie, what is your first cultural recommendation, please? My first recommendation is the film Rye Lane. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Directed by Rain Allen Miller, which I hope will still be in theaters when this minisode is broadcast. And if it is and you haven't seen it, please go and see it in the cinema. I'm sure it will come to streaming soon, but it was so fun to see it in the cinema. So... Regular listeners will know that I have a deep love for romantic comedy. And this felt like a really, really fun and fresh update on the form. So the film's set in and around Peckham and South London, and it has there's a very gorgeous cameo at the end from the South Bank, but it's mainly in those locations. And it is about Dom and Yaz, who are two 20-somethings who meet at an art show of a mutual friend that is all just pictures of close-ups of mouths, which is (laughs) such a funny joke. Or more accurately, actually, they meet because she catches him crying in the unisex toilets about a recent breakup that he's had. And a day of walking and talking and hijinks ensues. And it's a really... A snappy 80 minutes of a film. It never drags. It goes to unexpected places. It's hilariously funny. It's also touching. I knew how things were going to end, but it also surprised me constantly. And I loved that it was a film set so specifically in South London. I mean, speaking of cities, really, this part of London, the Black British community, it's a film that intimately understands the city and it films it so lovingly and it just made me really miss London and the two leads are incredible they have great chemistry they're really funny the acting is great it just was such a fun film to watch and I I loved it I thought it was great yeah agreed it was cracking and and the chemistry was real and it made me realize how often actually the leads in rom-coms don't really have much Mm -hmm. chemistry right (laughs) yeah What's your first recommendation? Mine is an exhibition that I am feeling kind of evangelical about, honestly. It's called Hot Off the Griddle and it's Alice Neal at the Barbican. Without a doubt, it's the best exhibition I've seen for a really long time in the impact it had on me and also just the experience of it so beautifully curated. And I'd I'd seen some of Neil's paintings before in reproduction and I always felt very drawn to them, but I'd never seen them in person before. And I didn't really have much context for her as an artist. You know, sometimes you come across people who are like, oh, that's nice, great, cool, Alice Neil, but I didn't look into her really. So for my first real encounter with her work to be in such a comprehensive show felt really incredibly special. And she was just a fascinating woman. She lived a really interesting life. She was a communist. She's American. She was a parent. She was a lover. She did not have wealth and means behind her. So she was kind of surviving in quite complicated times. She suffered a lot of tragedy. She had a breakdown. She lost a child. She had to survive as a single parent for a while. But she never stopped painting. And I think it was just this really fascinating 
testament to the fact that, you know, there are some artists who make art in order to survive. And she was one of them. She never let anything get in the way. And she has this gaze that is really, truly radical for its time, radically accepting, but radical in that it's curious and it's completely non-judgmental. And it is very much working against the traditions of portraiture. So she lived in Spanish Harlem for a lot of her life and she painted the people around her and her neighbors. So, you know, most of these people were not deemed subjects supposedly worthy of traditional portraiture, right? Like it's a very old art form with a lot of traditional conventions surrounding it, usually to do with status and hierarchy, a lot of white people essentially. And instead of aristocrats or politicians or whatever, supposedly kind of important, I'm waving my fingers around with quote marks like you wouldn't believe, but, you know, important people. Alice chose her sitters and they were people who were in her neighborhood. So they were people of color. They were mothers with babies. There were teenage boys, these so-called ordinary people who actually make up the city, you know, and her work is so about New York. It's so sort of steeped in New York, which feels very relevant, obviously, to this conversation in general. But um, yeah, they're beautiful. And eventually she painted portraits of famous people as well. But the intimacy of this gaze was very much shaped in the neighborhood. So she uses that same gaze when she's painting, for example, Andy Warhol. There is this incredible painting of Andy Warhol where he's topless and you can see the scars from his assassination attempt and the girdle he had to wear to kind of hold himself together afterwards, basically. And he is so, he's so recognizably Andy Warhol, but he is so different from the character that we're used to seeing, you know, the construction of Andy Warhol that he created for himself. And in this painting, he's so vulnerable, he's so raw, but he's also kind of wildly powerful because at that point in his life, he was already Andy Warhol, you know? So he's, she brings all of it to the canvas. And I, I left wanting to look at the world through Alice Neal's eyes and also kind of desperately wishing I could be looked at through Alice Neal's eyes. And I don't mean that in a kind of narcissistic way, more just that there is something really, really magical about her gaze that you you want to be near, basically. So if you can get to London, I think it's on for a while. It's it's so worth it. Yeah. I saw that in Paris, actually, in the fall of the same exhibition. And it's incredible. You're so right about her gaze. And there's something, the way she plays with space makes her portraiture, it's like coming out of the frame always. It feels so close in a way that not a lot of other portraiture does. I loved it. And I love how she uses color. Yeah. And there's this blue stripy chair that she had in her house, which she, towards the end of her career, like often placed her subjects in. So I, there's also this kind of wonderful sense of continuity through her later paintings where this chair shows up again and again. It kind of all culminates in this absolutely phenomenal self-portrait she did mm. naked in her 80s. And she said... Um, I, I, something like I've, I've always wanted to do a nude portrait, but I thought I'd wait until people would accuse me of insanity instead of vanity. <laughs> Just such an amazing line. Oh, great. <laughs> I think she was great fun as well, you know, like, yeah. Anyway, what's your next one? My next recommendation is one I've already like frantically texted you about a number of times. Um, and it's the TV series Andor which is a Star Wars spinoff. You have um, texted me about this show. And yes. Carrie, can I make a confession? You didn't like it? I watched the first episode and I found it quite boring. Oh, I'm so no. sorry. But I, like, I'm going to keep going because you love it, right? Yeah. Well, it tell does me. get less boring. I okay, think. tell me, tell me, tell me. I, wanna, okay. I want to be converted. I'm, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm ready. Well, I, except I liked it from the beginning. So maybe you won't like it. I don't know. I'm obsessed with this TV show and it's 
it's finally made me interested in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, you know, I like Star, I watched all the Star, like the main Star Wars and it's like, okay, fine. But I've never been obsessed with the world and all of a sudden I am interested. So I don't know. Did you see Rogue One? You know, I just can't remember. I've seen a lot of them, but I also get them kind of confused with Star Trek. And I think I prefer Star Trek because it's much more camp. So yeah. I'm not the I'm not the one to ask. I think I saw it. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, this Rogue One was a prequel that they made about a group of rebels. So this Andor is a prequel to that prequel, focusing specifically on a character named Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, who is one of the rebels. And the showrunner is Tony Gilroy, who co-wrote and directed Rogue One, and who is famous for, amongst other things, writing the the Bourne trilogy. And he has stated many, many times that his interest in Star Wars is not about, you know, people using the Force. It's about the more regular people living in this universe. And that's kind of what Rogue One was about. And it is also about what Andor is about. And what Andor is about really is the weight of empire and imperialism on ordinary people, the people at the fringes of this empire. And the means and the cost of rebellion. Great themes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I. it's funny, you're like, it's so boring. And I, I just found it thrilling. I think it looks amazing. They, you know, a lot of Star Wars is now basically filmed in a really high-tech green screen, but they did a lot of sort of on-location shooting for this. It's very philosophical and, and features some monologues that honestly feel almost Shakespearean. Stellan Skarsgård plays a really important part, and he has one that made me immediately rewind and rewatch it because it was so well-written and so beautiful. About the cost of rebellion, really. He's also a fabulous actor. Oh, God, yeah. He's so good. So I think it's a beautiful story. It's a thoughtful story. It still is kind of in the Star Wars universe, but... It's about so much and it's so nuanced while at the same time having some really amazing action sequences. So I would say give it a couple more episodes and <laughs> see if you like it. But if you don't like it, that's okay. No, no, I'm going to give it another go. I've been intending to. I just got distracted by Succession, which I will say no more about because spoilers, but holy shit. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> What's your last recommendation? Well, in the absence of, of not wanting to spoil Succession for anybody, I'm going to recommend a different TV show, which is called Rain Dogs. It's on iPlayer and it was written by Cash Caraway and it stars Daisy May Cooper and Jack Farthing. It bills itself as a comedy drama. And I think that can be a bit of a woolly term sometimes, right? But in this case, it's kind of perfect. It's It's a show that is very funny sometimes, although it's always in a dark way. Like it's quite bleak basically, but it can be very funny in that kind of gallows humor sort of way. But it, it is also very dramatic and it, it sort of centers around the relationship between its two protagonists. So Daisy May Cooper plays Costello Jones and Jack Farthing plays Selby. And they have this relationship that's essentially extremely toxic, but it is so much more complicated than a lot of the stuff that you see on telly. So Costello Jones is a writer. She's raising her daughter alone and she's trying really hard to make ends meet, but she does not have 
any kind of financial backing. So she's living in council housing, which she keeps getting evicted from, and she's having to make ends meet by doing sort of sex work sometimes and, and anything she can lay her hands on, basically. But the sex work strand is quite an important part of the story. And then Selby, her friend, they met at university, they met at Durham. He's a very rich, but very disaffected, depressive guy who has an allowance from his extremely wealthy family. And he acts as a kind of father figure to Costello's daughter. And Costello and Selby have this bond that is so powerful. It's family, but it's, you know, it's water is much thicker than blood in this kind of story. But it's often toxic for both of them and really toxic. Um, Selby's gay, so it's never romantic, but it has a kind of compulsive, sometimes violent, push me, pull you of a lot of abusive romantic relationships. And what I found really especially moving about this show is that there's zero judgment about the dysfunction in the heart of these two people's lives and their life together. But there is also no glamorizing of the toxicity of their relationship. Like it, it really makes it very clear to you that this is probably not very good for these two people, but it's also kind of all either of them has. And when that's all you have, of course you can't let it go. So I find the fact that it asks these questions in, in a really very nuanced way, given that it's kind of, you know, it's not billed as like a huge prestige television kind of show. It's kind of short, shorter episodes and things. It, it really does a brilliant job of it. And I think at the heart of it, it's interested in power. It's interested in power within intimate relationships. It's interested in survival of trauma and the different kinds of trauma that people survive. But it's also like looking at the nexus of power and how it relates to class and wealth, how that shows up in friendships, how that shows up in sort of social organization, basically. But it's so much more interested in the complicated nuances of any relationships that are forged out of necessity, maybe more than choice, right? I've made it sound heavier. It is heavy, but it's not only heavy, I think. It's really original. The characters are very memorable. They're almost kind of picaresque, like almost a little bit Dickensian, but they never, they never feel like caricatures, which I think is the real skill in the writing. So yeah, it's great. And Daisy May Cooper is just such a talent. She's an absolute force on screen. Wonderful. That sounds great. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Well, that's it. We will be back in your feeds in a number of weeks with a fantastic full show. And until then, thanks and goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>